0: Well, this is the last Sunday in this series that I've been calling the Inspired Text. And hopefully, over the last month, you're beginning to see just how alive and really fascinating the Bible can be. And as you start to read through it, it really, it's story after story of love and betrayal and cunning politics and soul-gripping transformation It's story after story of all of this hilarious moments where surprises happen. There's pages of playful wits and parties and funerals and mystery and war and sex and love triangles and family drama. I mean, when you read the Bible as a whole, it starts to almost look like this combination of like the Game of Thrones and the House of Cards mixed in with a little bit of parenthood and this is us, with the occasional Seinfeld episode slipped in along the way. So when the Bible starts to feel boring to you, and it can feel boring at times, mostly that means that we've gotten bogged down in some little portion of it and we don't really know how it fits with the whole yet. Because the Bible as a whole is just fascinating. And I'm trying to help us to see that by all the ways that I've been talking about it in this last month. Maps and metaphors, travail and trajectory, struggle but going somewhere, mirrors and windows. And I want you to see all of this because when we learn to read it well, we come to see just how beautiful and alive and honest and rich the Bible actually is. You know, I started this series several weeks ago talking about it being inspired, and I do believe that the Bible is inspired in a way, but to really understand what it means to call this text inspired, we have to learn to take the Bible for what it is and not, not put on it our own ideas. We have to learn what questions to ask. And so the way that we often hear people talk about or argue about the Bible in a lot of churches in our society today, it actually would make no sense to the original writers of the Bible themselves. It wouldn't even make sense to most Christians throughout most of church history for 2,000 years. I mean, when you hear someone talk about the Bible as inerrant, is it inerrant, it's, it's sort of easy to forget that that's an idea that just barely started to surface about 500 years ago, three-fourths of the way through the history of the church's life. And it really only came to prominence about 75 to 50 years ago. Rob Bell says that asking if the Bible is inerrant, it's kind of like asking if the lyrics to a YouTube song, U2 song are inerrant. It's really the wrong question. The question doesn't actually make sense. When people are fighting over whether or not something is literal in the Bible, whether it was a literal seven days creation, it's kind of like fighting over whether or not it was literally the best of times and the worst of times in the tale of two cities, but never actually entering the story. Or or when people focus all of their attention on whether or not Paul wrote this letter that's attributed to Paul or it was written by someone else using Paul's name and that's all that we focus on. That's interesting, it's helpful, but if that's all we focus on, it's like focusing all of our attention on whether or not Shakespeare actually wrote Romeo and Juliet, whether or not there was a historical Shakespeare, which probably Chuck could give us some enlightening things into that whole conversation without actually ever going to see Romeo and Juliet, (laughs) and entering the story itself. And you know, even when we come to the Bible and we start fighting over the ethical questions that we have to wrestle with as Christians, ethical questions today, but we come to the Bible and we pull out a verse here and a verse there and a verse here and a verse over there, and now we've got six nice little verses to answer our ethical questions. It's Well, it's kind of like coming to a cookbook and pulling out a recipe here from that one and a a line from an ingredient from that recipe and an ingredient from that recipe and putting it all together and deciding what is and is not okay to eat on the weekends. (laughs) It doesn't actually make any sense, does it? That's not reading the text well, it's not how it was meant. To be. And so often the church has just fought these wars with ourselves over the wrong questions because we've misunderstood what the Bible's actually up to. And what I hope for you, what I hope for us as a church, is that we can start to understand what the Bible is actually up to so that we can wrestle with it in the appropriate ways. Because when you do, it will start to change you and it will move your soul into some surprising places and make you ask different kinds of questions and it might even open you up in totally different ways. And that's what we heard a little glimpse of from our Ephesians reading that we just had in this beautiful letter that was written to a whole group of churches in this little area known as Ephesus, what's a part of modern day Turkey today. We hear the writer of this letter offer this holy longing for these churches I pray that the God of our Lord Jesus Christ may give you a spirit of wisdom and revelation as you come to know this God so that the eyes of your heart might be enlightened. And that, my friends, is what the Bible is actually up to. How often have you heard somebody say that the Bible is there to enlighten? us. I think a lot of times people come to the Bible and we sort of dismiss it because it seems like just the opposite, right? Like we come to these stories in the Bible and it seems petty and punitive and small-minded, the opposite of feeling enlightened. And well, certainly there are a whole lot of stories that are petty and punitive and small-minded because, remember, it's revealing to us just how petty and punitive and small-minded we are. (laughs) It's a mirror to us. That's part of the point when you understand the Bible as a mirror. But to see the Bible as a whole as petty and punitive is really to miss the movement that happens in the text as a whole. The struggle and the trajectory of where it's pushing back and forth but ultimately trying to get us to. If, if we see it all as petty and punitive we really haven't learned to read it well and, and we haven't really begun to recognize how In the pages of this book, there are these amazing progressive ideas that begin to break through into human consciousness for the very first time in these stories of the Bible. And many of these ideas we are still not living up to today. Many of them require our ongoing struggle and conversion of our own hearts and minds. And it's really that ongoing struggle and conversion that the Bible is trying to get to with us. Because the whole point of the whole Bible is about the eyes of our hearts being enlightened. And the way that does does that to us, it, it doesn't do it by giving us simple answers to our questions. The way that our souls, our hearts become more and more enlighten- enlightened is by facilitating an encounter with God. And let me say that again so that we can really get that. At, at the very best, what our scriptures do for us is they facilitate an encounter between our soul and the divine. At its best, that's what it's doing. This mysterious encounter it helps us to get to. The Bible is given to us for that reason. To help facilitate this encounter between the soul and the divine. Because it's in that encounter that the eyes of the heart become more open bit by bit. And how often have we heard that being taught about the Bible? I would say probably not enough. I think all of us, myself included, have a, t- have a tendency at time to reduce the Bible and reduce Christianity to really its lowest level of meaning, to about things that we can be right or wrong. Richard Rohr says, and I think he's really right here, is that this is One of the single biggest reasons people are leaving the church, they've been taught a Bible and a Christianity that's never gotten them to encounter, to touching mystery, to the presence of God that's meeting their deepest longings and desires they were taught instead a bible and a christianity whether they were in a more liberal church or a more conservative church they were so often taught a bible and a christianity that was about being right and wrong however that church defined it about being good or bad however that church defined it about us and them insiders and outsiders but not one that took them to this place of bumping into the holy or guiding them to a place of encountering their own soul and the presence of God within them and the presence of God that's all around them. I pray, Paul writes, that the God of our Lord Jesus Christ may give you a spirit of wisdom and revelation as you come to know this God so that... You can have all the answers to your questions? No. So that after you die, you can get into heaven? No. So that you won't make any mistakes in this life and screw things up along the way? No. So that the eyes of your heart may be enlightened. Some of you might remember that story from John chapter 9, where Jesus and his disciples come across this blind man, and the disciples ask Jesus, was this man born blind because of his sin or because of his parents' sin? Neither, Jesus says to them, you're asking the wrong question. Well, Jesus ends up healing this blind man, but then Jesus disappears into the crowd and the whole event, it actually sets off this whole firestorm because, you know, you're not supposed to heal people on the Sabbath. We wouldn't want people getting better in church. So the religious leaders call the man that was born blind over and they ask him about what happened. They start drilling into him and they ask him all kinds of questions and and the man just tries to keep answering their questions. Only the religious leaders at the time don't exactly like the man's answers because they don't fit into what they already believe. And so they keep trying to ask questions in such a way to get this man who is blind and can now see to denounce the one who has healed him. To denounce Jesus. (laughs) I'm sure the man's thinking, you all never healed me. Now, here's the thing. The blind man doesn't actually know Jesus before this point. He doesn't even really know Jesus at this point. All he knows is that there was this guy named Jesus who happened to come along and heal him, and he's just not going to go along now with the religious leader's game. In fact, there's this really funny exchange that happens in the story when they ask him for a third time about what happened, and he starts to get really sarcastic with them. Oh, you want to hear it again because you want to become one of his disciples too? (laughs) The whole scene actually starts to turn into this playful sitcom-like thing, but the the religious leaders, they completely lose their cool, and they end up kicking him out of the synagogue. They're kind of like the soup Nazi, get on out of (laughs) here. You're not doing it right. Well, later Jesus realizes what's happened, and outside of the synagogue, away from the crowd, he finds this man that... Was blind and now healed. And after talking to him for a little bit, there's this really mysterious line that Jesus says Jesus says, I have come that those who do not see may see, and those who do see may become blind. Ooh. Well, it's pretty clear Jesus isn't just talking about physical blindness. Someone actually overhears what Jesus says. Someone else off to the side and says, wait, wait. You aren't talking about me, are you, Jesus? I'm not blind. And then here's what Jesus says. If you knew that you were blind, you wouldn't have sinned. But you sin because you think you can see. That's so often what's at work as we approach the Bible and our Christianity at large. We think that we can see, and our way of seeing shapes then how we come to the Bible. I I mean, most of the time when we read the Bible, we are inclined to find what we already think. We're not doing it intentionally. It just happens naturally. We find what we already think, and we make that the point but again, what we think is not the point. How we see is the point. I pray that the eyes of your heart may be enlightened, Paul writes. How you see is what matters. How we see the world. How we see one another. How we see ourselves. That's the point. And maybe most importantly, how we See or don't see God at work in one another and the world and ourselves. And we hear that same idea again in the second reading we heard from Ephesians just a moment ago. From Ephesians 3. I pray that you may begin to comprehend the breadth and the length and the height and the depth of the love of Christ a love that surpasses all knowledge so that you might be filled with the fullness of God. You see, that is actually where the scriptures are trying to take us. That's where the trajectory is pointing us to all along the way, to be filled to this encounter of a love that is beyond our comprehension so that in the encounter itself, you, your life, your being, becomes filled with the fullness and the goodness of God. And that then begins to fill your life with the very life of God. You see how big that is? And just how expansive and and really how much life and joy and energy and movement is in that to be filled with all of the fullness of God. That's where the Bible wants to take us to. And the Bible never actually lands there. That's just where it's pointing to in the trajectory overall. That's where it's trying to keep us aiming towards, not thinking we've landed somewhere. And here's the thing with that. That always happens, almost always happens through struggle. That is, in fact, why the Bible contains so much struggle. It's why it is a text in travail, as we've been saying. It's in the struggle of life, in the struggle of the text, in the struggle of meaning that we start to be filled, we get changed, our eyes become open. We don't change much without struggle in our life. Our hearts don't get opened up in bigger ways much without struggle In fact, just look in all of creation around you. New life, fuller life in our world, it almost always includes some kind of struggle for birth and transformation to happen. And what I've been trying to say all month is that the Bible is a struggling text, a text that's taken two steps forward and one step back. And and in that struggle, it has this trajectory. And that trajectory is taking us somewhere. It's taking us towards this image of being filled with all the fullness of God to a deeper God consciousness that's sometimes described as And the Bible for us then is this mirror helping us to see that struggle deep in our own souls and that struggle in our families and that struggle in our communities so that we can kind of start to recognize what's happening in different ways. And then along the way, as it's getting mirrored back to us, it starts to offer us a window through which we can more clearly peer into and see the very heart of God. And that window we get most clearly in the person of Jesus Remember that story I told a few weeks ago from the Holocaust where the angel said, if you had only looked into his eyes instead of the book, you would have known the difference. And yes, as you read it, Along the way, it becomes more inspired because the whole is more than the sum of its parts. And as it comes together as a whole, the breath of God starts blowing through these pages in a way that it then starts blowing into our lives and in our church, in our communities. So, if you keep reading this ancient library of poems and stories and letters... The Spirit of God that is stirring in them and through the pages of the Bible will start stirring in you some. And there will be these moments of mysterious and profound encounters that will happen along the way, not every day, but it will happen because ultimately, at its best, the Bible's there to facilitate this encounter between our soul and God. So if that's what you want, then stay with the Bible. Read it and allow it to read you. Study it and read books about it, not just to learn about the ancient world and the original meanings. Yes, that's an important foundation block, but then let it begin to help you learn about your own life and soul. Wrestle with it. Meditate on it. Savor it. And not just for a year, but stick with it for the long haul so that In the travail and struggle of your own life, you too will get moved into deeper encounters with God. And and your capacity for God will start to grow. And as that happens, little by little, you will start to glimpse this love that surpasses our ability to know, that surpasses knowledge that Ephesians describes. And slowly, bit by bit, you will be filled, filled with all the fullness of God. Amen.